This is Mike McGinley. Troy Blakely. Mitch Rose. Peter Katzis. Mike Hayes. Tony from APA. Vince Bannon. Sean Healy. Steve Rennian. Rick Canny. Sam Kinkinen. Rob McDerf. Happy to be here on Promoter 101. Promoter 101. Promoter 101. Promoter 101. Come one, come all to the greatest podcast on earth. It's Promoter 101, episode 35. Direct your attention to the center ring as the amazing Luke Pierce tells you all about this week's amazing show. Dan, it is a fantastic show this week. We've got comedian Billy Wayne Davis giving us a taste of life on the road. Uh, our very own works entertainment, Cindy Lynott, is going to talk about the success of A Great Big World and Alex and Sierra. I'm very excited about this one. John Meglin is going to walk us through the early days of Concerts West. Plus, FTA's Rick Kenny is going to play three questions and the news of the week. Hey, it's David Brits from Works Entertainment, and you are listening to Promoter 101 with Steiny and Luke. Catch Promoter 101 live on tour when we come to your town. Thursday, September 7th, Promoter 101 comes to the Western Arts Alliance in Seattle, Washington, featuring special guest ICM Partners, Andrea Johnson. On Thursday, October 12th, Promoter 101 is going to roll into Boston, Massachusetts at the Berkeley Popular Institute. October 16th, the podcast will be recording live in Nashville. L.A. is going to be set for mid-November. We'll have some more details coming soon. If you want us to come to your town, feel free to talk to your university bookers and concert organizers to bring Promoter 101 podcast to your town for a live taping. Or email us at steiny at promoter101.net. Hey, this is Rob Zaffarelli. Patty Ann Tarleton. Paul Lohr. Joel Rodriguez. Rick Greenstein. Renato Snatchires. Rob Hallett. Rich Mills. Sasha Bombaji. Seth Hurwitz. Steve Martin. Whitney Bond. This is Trip Brown. Wayne Forte. Steve Zapp. Trevor Solomon. Be live on Promoter 101. Promoter 101. Promoter 101. It's time for the news of the week. Leading off here following the wake of the tragedy in Manchester, we've got Comic-Con. The banning prop weapons. So cosplayers who spend a lot of time and money on their costumes are going to be SOL if they had prop weapons or props that could be used as weapons. Phoenix Comic Con banned the use of prop weapons in Arizona on May 26, according to a report from Polestar. Kathy Griffin shocked both the left and the right by posting tasteless pictures of the president. Kathy quickly pulled down the pictures and offered her sincere apologies. I'm sorry, I went too far. I was wrong. However, this has resulted in some canceled shows, as well as her CNN deal has gone away for New Year's Eve. Some bad news from Tidal. It's losing its third CEO in just under two years. The streaming service announced in May 26 that Jeffrey Toig, who joined as CEO in 2016, left the company. No replacement's been announced. Coachella announces 2018 festival dates already attached. Beyonce will be headlining. It'll take place on the February 13th and February 20th weekends, Billboard is reporting. Some scary stuff from the Hollywood Bowl. The Hollywood Bowl confirmed there was a bomb threat during a Dead & Company show. You know, the first of two Dead & Company shows of the Hollywood Bowl this past Wednesday night, John Mayer and his Grateful Dead comrades were interrupted mid-song and ushered off stage as stage lights went dark for at least 10 minutes. According to Rick Farrell from ICM Partners, who was at the show, brought out some bomb dogs for maybe seven or eight minutes and then resumed the set that evening. So the L.A. Phil 
who manages the bull in the L.A. County Department of Parks and Recs, confirmed to Billboard that an unfounded bomb threat caused a temporary blackout. Billboard had the scoop. This week we lost one of the founding members of the Allman Brother Band, Greg Allman. He was a great talent. Rest well, brother. That's it for the News of the Week. My name is Reese Ryan Stemmer, and you can watch my daddy on Promoter 101. Got some birthdays we're celebrating this week. Monday, SMG's Bob Packey, TKO's Andrew Goodfriend, and Live Nation Canada's Ian Lowe. On Tuesday, June 6th, the Tacoma Dome's Tom Alexander, WME Brody Becker, and Derek Dolan are celebrating their birthdays. Wednesday, Red Lights, Stuart Ross, Ashley Street's Mark Hyman, and Taylor Gang's Will Zombach. Thursday, we're wishing a happy birthday to Wizard Promotions' Julia Frank and War Memorial's Roger LeBlanc, as well as Rick Ship. Friday, Knitting Factory's Dave Poe, DSP's John Sanders, and Matt Malice. On Saturday, thoughts going out to Soul Coffin's Mike Doty, Golden Voices' Nick Adler, manager Blaze James, Molly French, and manager Rich Egan. Happy birthday to all our friends from the gang at Promoter 101. I'm Jeff White with Ticketfly, and we're on Promoter 101. It wouldn't be Promoter 101 without the Tweets of the Week. Let's see what Dan said last week. When you get emailed at agency's roster and are shocked to learn that Rich Little and Gary Lewis are both still alive. The agent found this post to be a tad disrespectful. To that, I would like to share the words of the great Gary Lewis. Everybody loves a clown, so why don't you? That moment when you see the artist that passed on your history for more money only to be listed on Groupon later. Gotta love irony. When you call an office to ask, leave a message, the receptionist asks you to email instead, because it would be way easier. Nah, I'll just call your competitor. I bet they want my call. When you announce a show on Twitter in the venue and or act, like it instead of retweeting it. Get on the team and give us a retweet. Come on. The most profitable call I've been on was the one that the competitor did not return. Hashtag return every call. Hashtag Steinyverse. Never too busy to make money. When the show sells out, it's because the artist's amazing. When it bombs, it's because you're a shitty promoter. It's the story of my life. When you discover a manager is losing an act before the manager does. Shit, sorry, Luke. I really hate that you found out this way. Actually, I swear it's not a works act, but it happens every once in a while when you're on the inside and you have that information before possibly they've let the manager know, and it's a weird thing. That does it for Promoter One Tweets of the Week. Make sure to follow Dan on Twitter as the Jew. Hey, it's J. Bo Lewis from UTA, and you're on Promoter 101. It's time once again for three questions where listeners come on the podcast and get asked Steiny and Luke any three questions they'd like, industry, personal, whatever they want. Most importantly, we haven't seen the questions in advance. This week we're joined by talent manager from FTA, Rick Canny. Promoter 101, it's three questions. I'm excited to have Rick Canny join us this week. Pleasure to be here. So welcome to three questions, my friend. Yeah, I got a few questions for you. All right, well, fire at us. What would you be doing if you weren't doing this? I don't know. I briefly had a job in finance and consulting before I got into music. So if I wasn't doing this, I'd imagine I'd probably actually put those degrees in finance and economics to work doing something in uh, management consulting or building another business somewhere. Probably something a little bit more practical. It's hard. I mean, I think it'd probably be something that had to do with analyzation. I would imagine that charts would be involved. It seems like day trading or stockbroker would have been the world, but maybe a, a manager mutual fund or something. The vibe of being a banker definitely kind of comes off. Now, you just gave me my second question. You said mutual fund. What would you think of an index fund on either artist income or promoter income or management income? What would you think of something like that? This would be a great one for Luke since he's got such an analytic mind. 
What do you think, Luke? Yeah, it's an interesting concept. I don't know. I don't know what I think about that. I think uh, music's a pretty uh, inherently risky business, and I don't think you necessarily get anything from the diversification of having many streams of revenue coming into a single fund. So it's probably not something I'd park money in, to be honest. So it was an instrument available to me, but certainly be you know inquisitive enough to, to see what the marketplace looks like for it. I would personally say that it sounds like what the union does for the sports teams and where they take a percentage of those fees, or at least that was the idea originally. I don't know if they actually still do it, but I think they do. And they all protect themselves in that. I don't think that it would ever work because we're all so self-controlling and we don't trust anyone else that it's good in theory, but in practice... We all know each other way too well to trust each other. But we know who's making money and who's not. Yeah, and it works like for the first year where everybody throws in you know, this Athlete commercial where the guys that are losing get covered. But what about the guy that wins four years in a row and is covering everybody else's losses? He's going to jump out at some point. And since I've never had a year that lost, I'm fairly sure that like I'm going to be carrying somebody that just works you know, seven hours a week opposed to me that works seven hours on a Saturday normally. Third question. Luke. What made you want to partner with a promoter? That's an interesting question. I think there's probably similar answers to both. I will say this about Dan and, and this podcast. You know, this kind of started as an exercise in, uh, in Dan and I really exploring a way to produce in the podcast space. You know, we were kind of intrigued by the West Wing Weekly as we're both huge West Wing nerds. And when that podcast with Josh Molina and Rishikesh Hurway came out, we looked at producing, you know, live events, you know, around podcasts. So we looked at it as a, as a business opportunity. And I, on the management side of things, had a lot of uh, clients that were expressing interest and wanting to get into podcasts in some of their free time. So we kind of took on this thing as a, as a way to experiment, you know, in that space, learn more about it. And it kind of, you know, obviously spiraled into something a little bit uh, greater than, you know, just a, a learning exercise. The motivation of, of partnering with Dan, obviously, is, I mean, he's an incredible promoter, he's an incredible self-promoter, and, you know, you know you're know, you going to benefit certainly from his savvy on, on those front of things. He offers a really great perspective across a lot of different parts of the business and is obviously very well experienced and, and well liked in the industry. So it's great to have the ability to, to work with somebody on, on a project that's a really cool creative outlet for us on a weekly basis to kind of express our thoughts and ideas about the shape and scope of the business. So it's a really natural fit. And plus Dan and I are, are, you know, close personal friends and it's a good chance for us to just catch up on, on life and business in general, at least once a week. Very cool, man. Thank you so much for taking time to be on Promoter 101. Thank you for having me here. Thanks for joining us on Promoter 101 for three questions, Rick. If you'd like to be a part of asking the three questions on an upcoming episode of Promoter 101, please email us at steiny at promoter101.net. This is John Schultz. I'm Windish. Charlie from Crescent Barrooms. Craig Newman. Dave Brooks. Dave Chumley here. Dave Ratner. John Holiday. Ted Becknell. Alex. Imong Shaw. Kelly Lesko. Gerald B. Henley. Harlan Fry here. Jack Ross. Jason Miller. Jeffrey Fox. Joe Escalante. Blair LeBlanc. Martin Atkins. Neil Dixon. Nick Farkas. Paula Palazzo. And I'm on Promoter 101. Promoter 101. Promoter 101! This week, Dan sat down for a 101 with John Meglin to discuss the early days of Concerts West. Promoter 101, we're at the Sunset Marquee, joined by Mr. John Meglin. Thanks for being with us, John. Thanks, Dan. Good to be here. I want to just jump right into it. Like, <laughs> the world of AEG started with the Concert West story, and that's two guys that left the Pace well, world and, and started over. Tell me how this started. 
You know, I think what happened is that I always spent my life in touring, and I was never, I guess what you call a local promoter, didn't like promote any specific market per se. I always just went with a band, and we promoted everywhere we went. That's the way I learned it. That had to be a lot harder when there wasn't an internet. I, there was not internet. There were no cell phones. There were fax machines, okay? You did a lot of things by rolling in front of payphones. You know, you would get into the building, and you would find the payphones backstage, and you would roll your work case up and get a chair, and then you would sit there and work off of the cell phone all day. I mean, that was long before, honestly, it sometimes... We didn't even want to pay to install phone lines or even the concept of installing phone lines backstage was kind of, what do you mean we're going to put a phone in? You need a phone, you go up to the... So you just got a couple rolls of quarters and went? Yeah, or you go up to the building manager, use his phone. <laughs> it was tough. So we always did tours and, and it's always, it's my DNA when I went to work for Michael Cole in 1990. I started Concerts West in 78. The original Concerts West in the Northwest, right? Yeah, with, I was hired actually by Tom Hewlett. I was the student concert chairman at Washington State University. In and Pullman? Pullman, Washington, the Fighting Cougars, okay? And it's funny because a lot of guys that are in the business today came out of that kind of 1970s college concert programs. I mean, Rob Light was at Syracuse. Clint Mitchell was at University of Montana. I think the goon, Mike McGinley, was there before them. But every time you turn around and call it my peers today, they all came out of a pretty vibrant college concert program then. I remember Clint Mitchell went to work for the John Bauer Concert Company. And Bauer and Kinnear? Yeah, Bauer. Well, no, it was before. It was Kinnear at that time had Albatross Productions. And Hart wasn't even on the radar yet. They were not even probably a local band then. They were maybe just being a local band. All right, so Kinnear ended up managing Hart, John Bauer, and his wife, Ivy Bauer, and a guy named John Morrison worked for them. I mean, these are a lot of great names that came out of the Northwest. And they did a lot of the Van Halen dates nationally, too, because they oh, worked yeah. all over the place, too. Well, it was interesting. When I started, Concerts West was really the only national touring company in terms of, I mean... You know, I think Graham was doing some stuff, but he wasn't really doing touring. What he would do is he would go around and partner with all the local promoters. Was that focused in America and maybe Canada, or were you guys venturing overseas yet? No, we ventured into the UK. We ventured into France, just really into Paris and Japan. That was it. So the biggest possible cities in yeah, areas of those I mean, countries. Going into the rest of Europe at that time, it was you just you didn't have what you have today. It was impossible to. I remember when we were doing Stones tours. This is in the early '90s over in Japan. This in Michael Cole days. You would fax over all of your notes and your questions, go home, and then come back in the next morning and there'd be their fax with all of your answers. And then you would fax back, you know, and every once in a while, you know, you'd get on the phone, but you'd have to have translators. Because of the time change and the distance, it's just Crazy, easier. But so it took a long time to get a deal done. <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe it was and maybe it wasn't. Maybe now we just made it all too complicated. <laughs> I really like the simpleness of it then because, and I believe that simpleness still exists today, but we'll go into that later. Back to how it kind of the AEG part started, because I think that's what's more current and interesting to people today is that really the reason Paul and I went out and started up our Concerts West was because of what was going on with SFX. 
at the time. At that time, I was at Pace Touring, and Pace was required by SFX. And Louis Messina and I had built a nice little boutique touring company for Pace in a very short period of time. You guys built the amphitheaters, too, to support it. Well, was it connected again? See, it was... Everybody always thinks that the touring has some connection to the venues. Because I'm at AEG, that my touring has something to do with AEG venues. The way we do our touring has to do with taking the artist to the right place. Now, whose place that is, and it's a very interesting story because this is probably the reason that, and I've told this story before, but this is the reason I left SFX when everybody was running to be at SFX, okay? Everybody, you know, they had bought Bill Graham, they had bought Ronnie and Mitch, and they had bought Cooley and, and Conlon and, and Contemporary. You know, they bought Irv, and they're, now they're buying Pace, and, you know, they're buying all these concert companies, and a lot of it had to do with amphitheaters, okay? Because they wanted the real estate. They were going to control everything. I remember Sillerman standing there one day bitching about, Howard Rose, and we're going to call him Howard Howie, and we're going to, Howard Rose isn't going to dictate to us anymore. You know, it was like, give me a, you know. Easier said than done. Oh, man, this guy was a dick. I'm sorry, but he was. <laughs> he was like, hey, you know, it really did not rush. But back to the point. The point is, when I went down to meet with Brian Becker and Alan Becker about starting Pace Touring, I asked a very important question to the two of them. The question was, I said, guys, if I'm doing a tour with my artist and we go to Philadelphia and the right place for my artist is to play the Spectrum, oh, I'm dating myself now, okay, but you have this amphitheater, this blockbuster pavilion thing over across the river in New Jersey, okay, where do I play? And Alan Becker, because I love this guy, man, he was, Alan Becker, if you never got a chance to meet, I mean, he's one of the greatest guys out there, but Brian's dad, okay. Anyway, Alan looked at me and he said, John, we're investing in you for your business, okay, and you need to do what's right for your business. Now, I would like to think on a jump ball, you will knock at our direction. So anyway, fast forward a couple of years now, you know, Sillerman's buying all the concert promoters. He's got this guy named Mike Farrell, and I'm a problem because I'm not... Going along, getting along? You know, I just, I can't. It's just what they're doing, I, it just doesn't feel right. So Because you're here I to get, serve the artist. Yeah, so I get called to, I remember this night, it was, uh, CAA was having their, like, pre-Academy Awards party or something in the lobby. It's when they were in this I am pay building there on uh, Wilshire. And I was to meet Mike Farrell over at the Four Seasons afterwards and asked him. I gave him the same scenario, word for word. I laid it out to him. I even used the spectrum. And I looked at him and I said, what do I do? And he looked at me and he said, well, I think you know where your bread is buttered. And I went, well, I think I'm in the wrong place. You know, he proceeded to tell me that, you know, I had to evaluate my attitude. But that's when I knew I had to go. It's a risky thing financially. You were very secure in your world, and you oh, yeah. found well, other business. Oh yeah, not only that, I, um, let's see. you're giving up serious security in a no, big I company at that moment. A, I just, you know, I hadn't been out of Toronto that long, so I just bought a, a house. My wife and I had just adopted a little boy from Romania, and we're gonna go and be the other guys. <laughs> that was it. We're gonna be the other guys. And Gongawer came to me and said, come on, let's go do it. He was doing Yanni at the time. He was promoting Yanni for Danny O'Donovan and in the old... Which was still arena business at that point, oh, right? Oh, yeah, it was doing great, man. When you grew up at the old Concerts West, which was, you know, Management 3, Jerry Weintraub's management company, and Concerts West, 
his and Tom Hewlett and Terry Bassett and Bill McKenzie's concert company. So it wasn't like what local promoters did. You couldn't steal from the act here because it would you know, cause you your job, right? They knew where all the money was, okay? So we've always operated in full transparency, and that's always been our MO with people. I mean, I honestly, I feel bad for people today now that because everything's getting revealed, they're going to have to go back and explain all this shit, and we're like, well, I don't know. We just put it all on the table. But when you grow up doing touring, you always know that it's like, I understand a local promoter. He's got this one night. And the artist is nailing him with this really tough deal. And it's like, how do I make any money? Where do I make money? i got to make money somewhere. So they start making money on the side, you know, on other things. You know, when I started, it was, you know, you padded the cater bill with 500 bucks. Okay? It was, it was there. It was started like that. It was the extra forklift bill that the forklift didn't exist but it's you know <laughs> who's yeah. counting the forklift yeah we count forklifts so it's just people have a tough time but our philosophy was always look i'm just connected to the band the more the band makes the more i make so there's only one pot of money it's funny back in those days it was kind of weird concerts west was this big bad company that stole led zeppelin from frank barcelona premiere and bad company and didn't work with agents and all this kind of stuff, but we put every penny on the table with everybody. You know, we just, we did it their way and there were no guarantees. Bill McKenzie, who was kind of like the quiet, silent principal, Bill told me a story, he said, it was a funny story, you say, you know when the first guarantee ever on a Concerts West tour was the Bee Gees Spirit Over America tour. That was 1978 or 9. The Bee Gees guaranteed Concerts West a million dollars. I'm going to take a second because I think maybe I missed that. They guaranteed that we would make a million dollars. See, because all the money went on the table. We were worried about, no, we were worried about how much they were going to spend on production and they were like, they had other reasons. They were like, they had the movie stuff, they were promoting soundtracks, all the RSO stuff. You had all that going on. So... We want to do what they want to do. And maybe at the end of the day, what they want to do is not going to reap positive money touring because it's, it's a loss leader money. for other fields for them. But yeah, they needed to so make sure it was actually, worthwhile for you guys. It was very funny. The first Concerts West guarantee was the Bee Gees, you know, guaranteeing lots of million dollars. I don't know if it's true or not. It's, it's funny, a though. story, but it's a great story. And, awesome. But it proves the point. And I don't care. Like, Louis does it brilliantly today. And, seen and with his model, yeah. Barry Marshall, okay? They understand it's what we're doing. It's about the artist. We can exist in a large company that has venues and all types of venues and has local promoters and has clubs and theaters and all of that, okay? We can exist in that, and I think it's important we exist in there. Our job as promoters is really we marry art with commerce on the live side. That's it. And when I said we should keep it simple and we have a finite capacity, right? Anything else is a derivative of that. I don't care if it's the greatest technology in VR in the world. You're either there or you're not there. <laughs> you know, we all know that. So our focus is there. What's going on there? How is it the best live experience? How do we make sure that the revenue that these things generate stay with the artist? And I think Gongwer and I have done some really cool stuff on that 
with the way we've priced things and the way that we've it's very funny in all of these premium ticketing initiatives and all that stuff we've been doing this now for 10 years and now everybody's waking up to it it's crazy but my point is that that money belongs in our industry i'm not having the argument about mr local promoter whether he feels he should keep it or not my business model i put it all on the table with the artist but regardless that money belongs on our side of the fence not to a secondary random person that bought a ticket as no, if it was a future. No, I mean, I believe in free enterprise, all that type of thing. And the holy grail to me is the ticket. That's why I've been so anti-discounting and continue to be anti-discounting. Do you not ever do it when the manager insists? I never say never. I mean, yeah, of course it's happened. And But I will tell you that you walk around my office and you ask them, what does John think about discounting? And they'll tell you. Put it this way. They're afraid if it does need to be done and sometimes and they got to come into my office and tell me about it. They're nervous to come in and tell me. <laughs> but it's just a bad business model. You're training the fans to wait for the better deal. No, what we're trying to do is we got our economics out of whack in many, many different ways, okay? If you can't sell an arena, why play in an arena? Play the size place you should be playing. Keep your ticket so it has value. We've all bought tours and dates where we thought they were going to sell and we believed that they were that didn't. Those mistakes happen. Playing an arena that you shouldn't be playing is one thing, but sometimes the public just doesn't respond the way you think they're going to. It's happened to all of us. Yeah, but I'm not talking about, I don't like to focus on failures, okay? I like to focus on, let's how do we do the right thing? And let's look at it ahead of time and say, what's the right thing? I'll give you a good tangent example. Nobody originally believed in the residency model, okay, in Las Vegas. We started that, we did the very first one. Everybody said, wait a minute, nobody can sit and play 4,000 seats that many times a year, da 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 da. Not alone that, but you can't pay anybody enough money to do it. And now that dynamic pricing is even becoming more acceptable, easier to do and operate, the numbers for an artist priced properly in a 4,000 seater are equal to or can even exceed what those artists could almost gross in an arena. It's easy to look back now and say you were right, and we all know that you were because everybody well, followed. Yeah, but so to make that financial investment that you guys and Caesars committed to build the Coliseum, to have the balls to like roll out that kind of money and commit to it and go big with it, you guys put your money where your mouth was. Well, but that's what promoters do. It's all well, relative, okay. but on a much I, I bigger know, level. But, okay, yeah, but I don't know. Thank you. Jerry Weintraub, Michael Cole, all the great guys who taught me a lot of shit. Why do million dollar deals when you can do $10 million deals? Why do $10 million deals when you can do $100 million deals, right? Honestly, yeah, it scares shit out of people, but I don't know, to me it's almost in some ways, now that one was crazy. What people forget about, people now think about Celine doing a residency. That wasn't what it was back then. What it was was the guy who created O, with the greatest female singer in the world married together it was intended to be a one and one equals three spent a ton of time getting a lot of emails from cirque saying would you please keep using the creator of Vogue, all these kind of stuff in your market and you know and i'm like but he did i mean it was like no if somebody came to me and said you want to do 200 shows a year of Celine Dion in a 4,000-seater in Las Vegas, I would have gone, you're fucking nuts. But somebody came to me and said, there's this idea, this concept, and once you heard it, you either were a believer or you weren't a believer. 
Most people won't take the time to even look at things. We're all cynics in this business. We want to see everybody else fail. And so we always want to pick the negative, which is like, I'm fine. You want to focus on that? I'm having a good time over here. It's not untrue. I mean, you read any of the business emails or newsletters that come out. That's why Firefest won't go away. People can't stop talking about it. Now it's 10%. Yeah, I mean, it's God. You know, it's tough today with the technology with this instantaneous connection that we all have. I mean, you, we see it every day, that poor sucker up in Montana, the Decta reporter yesterday, and this guy that, and it's like, oh my God. Which, by the way, that's why live needs to be live. That's why that ticket's so important. Let's divert back for a second and talk about, you talked about leaving, and okay. that SFX wasn't going to be the place for you, and right. you wanted to be in a different place. How did that wind up happening that you guys were set up in business to go out and do runs and financially Oh, yeah, we kind of lost it there, did we? Yeah. That's the I moment mean, that, that kind of like, changed the industry. That was, a, that was a scary time period. But there wouldn't be a real competitor to Live Nation, at least it seems, had you guys not developed that when you started. And ironically, believe it or not, at exactly the same time, Paul and I started up Arena Network. I don't know if people remember that. It's still around. Yeah. And we actually held on to that. Even after we sold the company to AEG, we held on to Arena Network and we sold that back to the arenas themselves a number of years ago now. But some of the focus was on arenas. And we said, wait a minute, this guy's rolling up all these amphitheaters. He thinks that's a business. Da, 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 da. Who's going to protect the arena? So there were little buzzwords or little sayings that were floating around during that time period, like the building manager would wake up on Sunday morning and see an ad for a show out at the amphitheater, and he didn't even know the show was coming to town. You know, never even got a shot at it. So it was things like that. So we formed the arena network to kind of represent very funny i want to we named it driving back from las vegas we couldn't afford to fly then so we drove <laughs> uh, <laughs> no we did we'd go to the long beach airport because we could get 20 dollars tickets on i forget whatever the name of the airline was you know it cost me more than gas to drive to long beach you know and 20 bucks to fly to vegas because we didn't have any money so and this is when you left sfx yeah. about to run a national syndicate promote shows you guys are pinching pennies this is awesome yeah i mean i remember the first two years man we each have our salaries paul and i each made 200 dollars a week that was it <laughs> that was just that we had insurance i mean that was it. everything else was like into the company so no, you were so really we, committed to like make this work you were willing to work for no salary basically to like keep this off the ground and do the well, shows the way you wanted to do it we knew we had to strike at it and we knew that you really had to move on this quickly or you know they look he could have run the tables he very well could have run the tables, sillerman and then they tried to again when brian had it his clear channel and you could say they're trying to run it again now at least north america europe man they're everywhere. their global play is a serious thing it michael is definitely stepped it up you know and listen i give him so much credit man he's just very very funny story just one more tangent i remember my first day at cpi up in toronto was july 1 of 1990 so i get up there like you know the week before i drove up from la and there was a guy that was going to be my marketing guy named jeff shabon and jeff shabon yeah yeah you know jeff who's down in Santa Fantasma, yeah. yeah yeah exactly well that's where yeah. yeah so i think he's with jv now back down there again i think he is back there so Shabon's going to be my marketing guy, and he comes over to this apartment that they're putting me in, like I'm in like the Toronto version of an Oakwood apartment, you know, furnished apartment, you right. know, with three plates and two forks and a glass, right? And he comes over, 
with his buddy, this young kid named Mike Rapino, and they're going to take me out on this boat on Lake Ontario where this <laughs> guy who is now Joey Scolari okay, <laughs> is the DJ. And I'm like, oh, great. And look, Michael, you know, I saw him while I was working for Labatt's, you know, then he went and did core audience, you know, him and Steve Herman and Gord Berg, one of my guys. And, you know, and they got acquired and all that, but... And he, he's done an amazing job. He really has. Look, I grew up and worked so much with so many of those guys. I'm not, I can't say anything bad about any of them. They just wear a different jersey. They're super likable guys, and they're doing good business. It's all about different styles. If you want to go to this, Paul and I said, wait a minute. These guys are trying to take all the power to, quote, say, the promoter and the venue, et cetera, et cetera. And they're going to, quote, teach these artists a lesson. Paul and I said, great, there's got to be business for us. Probably a couple of people that don't want to be taught a lesson. No, I mean, actually, the very first thing we actually got was we got Andrea Bocelli a bunch of his shows on the West Coast. It was his first run, and we just hustled it. Sting was early too, right? No, it was Don Henley. See, Irving gave us, and we partnered it with Bassett, gave us some Millennium shows for the Eagles here in L.A., and it was a no-guarantee deal. We just really all worked it together and hard. There, We put the show on sale before Staples even had seats in it and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it wasn't the opening show because Springsteen was, but it was the Millennium show. And then Irving also, we did Don Henley. We'd have to partner with different people out there. And we just started hustling. And we got Mariah Carey. And Paul and I found a guy up, Darren Libinati in Las Vegas, turned us on to this guy named Alan James. He passed away a number of years ago, but was a small boxing promoter and did some small independent films. He had a company that built railroad car containers and barges that went on the Columbia River. <laughs> a whole bunch of different hats. Hey, but a great guy. So this is when we needed to really start putting up some guarantees for things. So we made a deal with this guy to be to back us just on a tour-by-tour -tour basis. We'd get a tour, we'd come in, and we'd present our economics and that, and the money would take half, and the, and the work would take the other half. And we'd each pay the cost of our own business and that. But that's when we did Mariah Carey, and that's when we did the Dixie Chicks. And we started making some headway. We're like a couple little guys. We're actually starting to make a little bit of money. We're 300 bucks a week. No, we actually gave it to all the employees because we couldn't pay them more, much more either. So we, you know, we had to give it to them first or they were going to leave. No, we waited. We didn't make any money until we sold the company. I mean, we were doing okay. We were getting by. That last year, we actually did make some good money. We knew what was coming is that you needed to have massive capital to do this shit. That in order to compete, you were going to have to say, yeah, I can guarantee $100 million. I can guarantee $250 million. So going through the whole process of explaining to people what that risk really means, you're not really risking $150 million. And that whole process, it was, Paul and I had spent a lot, a lot of our time doing that. So we put together a book I was telling you, we hired this Harvard business grad, paid her 15 grand. We had, like I said, 20 months of history and 20 years of vision. <laughs> <laughs> and ironically, it's coming up on 20 years. Isn't that crazy? Is it really? Yeah. Honestly, if I pulled this book out today, you would be shocked how much it matches what the company looks like today. So you, called your, you called your shot and actually like lined it. it up? Well, see, we thought we needed to get with like SMG because they were the big building arena dogs at the time. And we were still in meetings. are. Yeah, and we were in meetings with them. 
okay? And we were in some serious conversations with him back in Philadelphia, and it was Irving who called me and said, you know, I want to see this book. And I went over to Irving's house, and he picked up the phone and called Lywicki and said, you guys need to be with AEG. I honestly didn't even... I had met Lywicki. We didn't even really know who Phil Anschutz was. You know, that night I'm on dogpile.com looking at Quest Communications, railroads. It was one of those things where you probably went back and Googled the name three or four times, whatever, because Maybe it's your results just didn't show anything in the entertainment business, you know? What's Quest got to do with the Rolling Stones? Yeah, I, exactly. I go, huh? Anyway, the next day we were down meeting with them, and they asked if we could go to Vegas at weekend because the uh kings do their you know it's called uh, frozen fury you know when they play the avs their final preseason game yeah so it's a big deal so we went over and met with phil for the first time and his guys and kind of shook hands on a deal at the end of that and ironically it was at the end of that meeting this meeting was good i'd say three hours maybe maybe longer it seemed very long and then there was going to be a reception we were going to afterwards but it was right at the end of that meeting is when Lywicki said to me he said John tell Phil about that Celine idea and I literally leaned up against the wall with Phil for about 15 minutes and just laid it out to him and broad stroked the finances and that and he looked at me and he said you know John I think we should do it I about fell over Took you 15 minutes to pitch him and for him to, like, say, go for it? Yeah. I mean, trust me, there were thousands Good thing you of were available that weekend, huh? Thousands of checks and balances. I mean, that's... How would your life be different had you not been able to go to Vegas that weekend? Isn't that incredible when you think about that? Not only that, but, see, Gongaware and I, during this time period, uh, I'm gonna, this is another real tangent, but when I was up with Cole, I did that Bowie Nine Inch Nails tour called the outside tour i remember that show it was an odd show it was so odd it was so weird but anyway john Mom, oh, we might have gone too cool at that moment it was bizarre he was over the audience's head no, he was over i mean and david did not do a single hit all new stuff from that album yeah i remember the lights coming on at the end of the show going really yeah like he's not even gonna finish with a great song yes it was really well i i was out there doing that whole tour it was really weird i, I actually one night asked david if it bothered him that half the people were leaving and he said no I'm doing all new stuff. The way I look at it is half stay. And that priced the Nine Inch Nails fans out well, of the market, too, because those tickets were expensive, and Nine Inch Nails had just done the arenas before that. And that tour did not work. But back to the story is that when we came to play the Forum, I think it was John Malm, might have been Alex Cochin, one of the two of them, said, hey, we got these guys that have always worked with us in L.A. named Golden Voice. Would you mind taking care of them? Or, you know, okay, we want to include them in the show. I think it was, you know, Paul T and Rick Van Santen. And I gave him a buck ticket. And we, we sold it out. It was like 18,000 seats. So, Which is not bad. No, I mean, I, I think if you go to Paul now, he'll tell you that was the biggest win to date in their company. Okay? It was making 18 grand. And I really liked those guys. They were really interesting guys. And I kind of, I don't know, they seemed quirky and weird and got them and all that. But that was really it. And then fast forward, Gongor and I were like a year into Concerts West on our own. And Paul T calls and asks if he can come by one day. And he comes by and he... Looks at Gongwer and I and says, you guys mind taking a ride out to the desert? I want to show you something. And so we drive out, and we, I, I still look at that corner the same way. Go out there, and he says, you know, I did. Picturing Paul T is uh, Joe Pesci in Casino. Like, you guys want to take a ride out to the desert with yeah, your competitor? Yeah, the desert, right. Uh, Completely not, not his vibe. Not, but... with, not with Talette. <laughs> not his vibe at all. By the way, still. Pesci's one of my golf partners, so uh, he's a lakeside guy. 
Anyway, amazing jazz singer, by the way. Joe Paul Pesci. T or Joe Pesci? No, Joe Pesci is an incredible jazz singer. You guys have no idea. If you can find a Joe Pesci jazz record, I'm sure. Do they exist? Yes. Did he lay down vinyl? He has laid stuff down. He's. I'm, I'm dead serious. He's really good. But not good enough for you to promote the tour. Well, no, no. Problem is he can't go out. People bug him. People heckle him. So Paul T drives, you know, Gongor and I drive out there and he says, you know, I did Pearl Jam out here and made some money and then I did this festival here and I lost everything, but I really think it'll work. And I remember Gongor just going, hey, it takes three years to get one of these things off the ground. We'll back you. So we did. And uh, we lost a lot of money. Did you guys back them from year one? That was Coachella. No, that would actually be considered Coachella two. Okay. Year three is when we... It was right before, right after Coachella, what would be three, that we had sold the company to AEG. They thought we were trying to throw shit into the deal because it was a, on our books, it's a negative. And I even got chewed out by Liwiki at a board meeting once. Because, you know, we were down above the palm and we used to have these board meetings in the little conference room. It was like 16 of us around a table for eight, right? And I'm going through little stuff we're working on. This is right at the beginning. And I'm like, eh, we got our Coachella Festival coming up on Palm Springs in a couple of weeks. And, that, and, that. and Phil goes, uh, what's that thing out in Palm Springs? And I said, well, we, well, there's a little music festival out there. And he said, well, you know, I got a place in Palm Springs. And I said, well, I don't know what you're doing that weekend, but if you want to come out. And then right then, Liwiki gives me the finger, like, into my office. But anyway, I mean, Liwiki chewed me out for inviting him out there and thought, oh, you're going to invite him out there and he's going to see. And I'm like, Tim, you've never been there. You know, Phil came out. I remember it so well. We were only Saturday and Sunday. So Friday night was kind of like a few sound checks going on, and we decided to have a little barbecue since Phil's coming out. And we had Blue Man Group on the second stage. And I remember I got Phil in my cart and I'm driving him around, showing him the site. And he's seeing all his art and he's seeing this for the first time. And Blue Man Group's up doing a sound check and he'd never seen them or anything. So we sat in my cart for like about five, ten minutes watching Blue Man Group. And then I drove him around. And I remember we drove out to the parking lot and we didn't have camping, but we had like you could park the night before or something weird like that. But they had a big blow up movie screen like inflatable drive-in oh, movie cool. screen and they were showing the original willy wonka in the chocolate factory and honestly so the guy come out to i the, mean he come got out to the it. woods and trip and hang out fun yeah i mean he totally got it he right then and there got it and then everybody else jumped on board afterwards but the guy so he has know, vision man the guy's got vision the guy really gets it it's so cool I mean, I wish I had 10% of the vision the guy has. He does, as they say, he sees around corners. I mean, he's a wind farm in Wyoming and all of the stuff that he's involved in with the, from the national parks and really like the Broadmoor and Sea Islands and things like that. He's just, God, you look at the guy and go, wish I had the vision he had. I mean, I'm glad he did because he bought us. Before I let you go, and we clearly, we need to do more sessions because <laughs> we're just getting to like, right. the good yes. stuff. But what's the difference between Concerts West and AEG Presents? Well, today, Concerts West is just a division of AEG Presents, simply. We're a division now, okay? We were the original founding block of it. Uh, myself, probably a little more than Gongwear Times, was have been involved in the overall building of the company now for 18 years. And so honestly, part of this was, I believe in a thing like when I retire, I don't know if I'll ever retire, but when I'm, when it's time, when you're letting go of it and turning it over to the other stuff. Okay. I don't want to be one of those guys that when I leave, it falls apart. 
I want it to just continue running. And I think that's why we call it Concerts West, is because there's a group of us that always have had that kind of belief system. We can do what we do virtually anywhere. And so it's more about passing it on to people. And we're a unique, if you want to call it boutique, international touring group. But I also still oversee Vegas, too, because that's like my puppy. We can talk about that another time. Are there any promoters that are coming up that you see that spirit of entrepreneur that Tillette has? It's like, from your position, are you seeing any of that stuff? Well, unfortunately, I don't remember most of their names. There's so many of them. I wish I could. But, like, you look at Stacey V and what she has become in our company. And it's just like, you can't be more proud. People like Leslie Olin and Kelly DiStefano, who works for us right now, what a superstar. Adam Wilkes. What he has done in Asia for us is absolutely incredible. I mean, he has become the Bill Graham of Asia for the amount of stuff he's doing and how good he is. So, yeah, I mean, that's the whole point. The whole point are these, and I'm sure I'm missing somebody that I'm forgetting. No, I'm just Cody, asking from Cody Lazor, who's now got his own touring group. Man, he started as an intern for me, you know, and now he's got his own touring division. So that's what's important to me. See, no two artists are alike. No two tours are alike. So you can't build a little factory. I mean, it's going to handle all of them. I know Ticketmaster thinks they can, and they think everything can fit into their little widget machine. But the fact is, art is different. The smile on your Just face because record, David Marcus I'm, is in I'm the room. I'm David Marcus <laughs> in the other room. Okay, but no, the fact is, like I said, their art... Our job is to do the commerce part, and they're all different, man. So all I try and teach my people is you look at what you're doing and you figure out how to do it right. Just do it right. That's all that matters, okay? What a great place to end. Thank you so much for taking the time, John. Thanks, Dan. Meglin's mind is next level. John has agreed to come back and tell us the next chapter of the Concert West story. I can't wait. Stay tuned for that. Hi, I'm Mitch Rose, co-head of the music department at CAA, and I'm on Promoter 101. This week, we caught up with Works Entertainment, Cindy Lineup. She tells all about the success of Great Big World and Alex and Sierra and her early days on the record side of the biz. Promoter 101, we're at the Sunset Marquee in Los Angeles, California, and I'm hanging out with Works Entertainment, Cindy Lineup. And before we get going, just for the record, you are partners with Luke Pierce, who is yes, co-host of the podcast. So Luke's not in the room because it'd just be kind of weird to interview your partner. And I'd rather talk to you anyways, Dan. So. I think I'm much better at this than Luke is. Much more attractive, too. <laughs> so you definitely have a past before you moved over to the management world and the record side of the business. And it got to experience a little bit at South by Southwest and how well you're versed in that side of the industry. Like all the record people love yes. you. You know that world really well. I spent about seven and a half years working at record labels in New York. I started out at Island Def Jam Records and started in the marketing department and then actually went into the artist development department. So for a while, my job was to do tour marketing at the label. And then after that, I moved over to Atlantic Records when Julie Greenwald and Livia Tortella all um, you know, moved from Island Def Jam over to Atlantic. I followed as quickly as I can because I just loved working for them and I went to Atlantic and I actually got a job working in their mobile marketing department. So for a while, my job was to do ringtones. <laughs> that was back in you know 2005 when people actually bought ringtones and we all thought that it was going to save the music industry because people would pay 99 cents for an entire song and then $2.50 for a 30-second snippet of it that they could use on the ringtone. So ride that wave for a while until people learned how to steal ringtones and then 
it just kind of stopped being a thing. But I ultimately wanted to get back into marketing. So by the end of my time at Labels, I was a product manager at Atlantic Records. And I got to work with Rob Thomas, Matchbox 20. I put out the first two Twilight soundtracks and worked with a bunch of Field by Ramen bands. It was a lot of fun. Okay, so doing artist development, I mean, that's just basically stepping you right into the management world. You're like halfway there already. Yes. So that must have been an easy transition for you. Coming from a label background, especially a marketing role at the label, I learned how to deal with artwork and how to deal with tour marketing and how to deal with making a timeline and putting out a record. And a lot of the marketing aspect of being a manager when I went into management, the biggest thing that I did have to learn was the touring side and the publishing side and the A&R side. And there were definitely a lot of aspects of it that I got to jump in and learn. But that was the most fun part because who wants to do the same thing every day and ever become really complacent in what they're doing? Okay. And you've had some success on the other side of the ball now as you've been a manager for a handful of years now, right? Yes. Going mm-hmm. on four or five? Seven, actually. Great Big World's had some serious success. And you said yesterday they were just certified, was it six times platinum? Yeah. Say Something was certified six times platinum yesterday that's which is crazy amazing and that's just in the u.s they've sold another like three million worldwide yeah that had a great launch but i mean it was involved with glee right do you think that that was what really helped kick that up to the next level the song say something actually was launched by the show so you think you can dance ian axel had recorded and released it through his prior solo project and through that it kind of got out into the dance community so there was a choreographer at So You Think You Can Dance named Stacey Tukey, who knew the song, reached out to us to license it. And we were like, oh, well, we actually just re-recorded it for Ian's new project called A Great Big World. So we gave her the new version and we put it out that day on iTunes. And the label was expecting absolutely nothing. They'd actually pulled numbers for me showing that on So You Think You Can this Dance. This just random timing. You just happened to have put it out that day anyway? No, we scheduled it because we okay. knew the license was happening. But Epic actually didn't even want to put it out because they had pulled numbers and seen that when a song is on So You Think You Can Dance, a totally unknown song, it usually sells 500 to 1,000 units the following week. And Epic was like, you know, that's not a big enough number to justify us releasing a song. And I put my foot down and was like, listen, I don't care if 50 people download it or 50,000 people download it. If they hear the song on the show and they want to get it, they should be able to get it. You know, it was 2013 at the time. People are used to being able to get things when they hear it. So Epic agreed to put out the song and the following day we were number 20 overall on iTunes and sold 15,000 units in a day. So that was more than your 50 that you predicted. Yes, they were very shocked and surprised. So then decided to ship the song to radio the next day. So by Thursday, we shipped the single to radio. And by Monday, Epic had had their biggest ad week at radio in years. Who else are you handling right now? What's next for you? As uh, You guys are off cycle working on a new album, obviously, with Great Big yes, World. Yes, A Great Big World is writing. They'll be turning in some more music over the summer. And then I work with Alex and Sierra, who won the X Factor three years ago. And they're just fantastic because a lot of these you know, reality TV show winners are able to build huge social numbers during the show but then that kind of goes away after the show. So with Alex and Sierra, a lot of people look at their big social numbers and don't really believe that those people are still there, but they are. And Alex and Sierra have done an amazing job of continuing to communicate. People just love them so much. And we recently put them out on a tour and sold out seven out of nine shows. And we're looking to do more of that later this fall. Seven out of nine is not a bad number. In all fairness, one of them that didn't sell out was Albuquerque for a matinee on a Sunday. (laughs) I think we get an asterisk on that one. It was added two weeks out. I don't know that you can even like, that shouldn't be part of the math on that. Your batting ratio shouldn't be brought down for that. All right. Well, still pretty good numbers. They're certainly happening. They're very attractive couples. 
couple. There are a couple, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was really surprised to see the turnout for them so quickly, so early on in the career. I was expecting that yeah. we were going to do a development tour, and I was very happily surprised that we sold out yeah. the rooms and very quickly. Yeah, I mean, it was their first headline tour, so it's been a couple of years since they put out their major label album and we didn't really know what was going to happen and we were conservative with the rooms that we booked we wanted to make sure that it was a good look and it was you guys have done something to monetize this tour that i haven't seen a ton of club acts do which i know is a moving trend but that's the vip fan experience yes where you guys were able to generate more revenue in a smaller club by giving fans access yes we did a pre-show meet and greet we had a lower price level that we allowed 50 people to purchase and then a higher priced, really exclusive thing where six fans were able to go back and actually hang out in the green room and Alex and Sierra sang a couple acoustic songs for them. And we pretty much sold out all of those as well. And we knew that it would work with Alex and Sierra because in addition to the, the music that everybody loves, they do have this celebrity factor to them from being on the X Factor. So, you know, their fans know so much about them. They've seen them interact on TV and through their socials. So actually meeting them and spending time with them is an incredibly valuable thing for their fan base specifically. And this is not a new thing, the VIP experience with the backstage and the upsell, but it is newer in the development first round tour yeah. business. I mean, we've seen it in the ballrooms for sure in the last couple of years, and it's moved into the, some of the more higher end club shows. But to start to see it come into play with the younger bands right out of the box leads to a couple questions. Mm -hmm. One is making sure that the act is extrovert enough to engage in a small room. It's one thing to do it on stage. It's another thing to do it hand to hand yeah. when your fans are right there, which I th imagine has to be a little bit of training and has to be a little bit of management, like making sure that you're putting them in the room when you're not going to be in the room every night to like yeah. do that for them. Well, I think you have to have somebody on the road, either a tour manager or a VIP manager who can really streamline the process. And I think all artists they have to be good at even if they're, you know, introverts backstage and I need my time, I need my space. Once they get out and they're in front of their fans, they have to become extroverted. And that's what they do in the meet and greets or on the stage. And if they're not, if they don't want to do that, then then they're not going to do a, a meet and greet. You have to look at every artist case by case and make sure that A, they have the ability to do it and B, the stamina to do it because it is a lot of work and it's something you do before the show. So it kind of takes you out of your zone. And, you know, for instance, with a great big world, we always do the meet and greets and Chad ended up losing his voice because we really stacked their last tour with four on days, one off day and doing a headline show and then these meet and greets and then the interviews, it just became too much and he lost his voice, but he was able to go on vocal rest 90% of the day and then just pull it all together for the meet and greet and then go on stage and then go back on vocal rest for, until the next day. Okay, so I mean, that's a real commitment to like making the fan experience and the show work. Yeah, because hopefully all artists or most artists are smart about numbers. And when you look at the VIP and you see what it's doing to your bottom line, you know, allowing you to get on the tour bus or make money on a tour, then it's worth it. It's worth it. That's the time. really the difference in the margin on some of these smaller clubs. It is, especially on the smaller tours. Because if you're yeah. selling 500 tickets at 25 bucks, but you're able to sell another 100 tickets tickets with an equivalent hundred dollar like value in there yeah. that's covering the bus and then some for the week yes exactly okay let's go back to what you said about the reality world and the social media numbers blowing up and then those fans not really being there to engage mm -hmm. when it goes stale and that clearly wasn't the case for you and i think that's obviously um 
something that you guys have done well as a firm with Home Free as well as they had great success on the sing-off, but were able to continue their engagement yeah. on YouTube. And really, that's what drives the business is that YouTube business because there's not much radio involved with Home Free yet because there just doesn't enough acapella format on radio yet. Right. How do you know the difference between when it is a moment of they were just on The Bachelor and 25,000 people engaged, but nobody's actually paying attention because yeah. he was voted off and this is a real thing. People are paying attention. How do you wean that out? I think it's hard to wean out until it happens. And I think for reality TV show properties, the good thing about Alex and Sierra is that they won the X Factor in December, got their record deal, got their management deal, and immediately went in to record music. And they had released music five months later. And, you know, the fans saw things were happening and they were excited about it and they were waiting. So I think if you can just go right into your next step, and then of course the music has to connect, but they they did it right as far as moving right into the next phase and getting right with it. I think if artists then take a break and let me figure out who I am and I'm going to go right for five months and then I'm going to come back and they don't engage their fans throughout that entire process. I think that's where you start losing people. As far as anyone looking at it, you can see how many retweets there are, how many people are replying. It's very easy to see when the fan base is still engaged and when they're not. When you get the calls for meetings, when an act is looking for management, how do you get into that circuit that people like take you seriously as a manager? Like that's got to be something you work for and clearly you've accomplished. But how does that come about? I mean, it's your track record and it's what people say about you. So people have their teams, they have agents who are helping them find a new manager or they have a label who's helping them find a new manager. And those people are reaching out to the folks that they've worked with before and that they respect and that they think would be a good fit for the job. So for me, it's just about building the best reputation that I can and, you know, actually answering emails and answering phone calls and being on top of my shit and just knowing that putting the work in is going to get my name out there and, and have more opportunities come in because of it. Okay. So Alex and Sierra, great big world. Who else? One of the most interesting clients I work with is Rob Cantor, who does not tour at all. He has never played a single show, but he has some amazing YouTube videos. The one most people would know is Shia LaBeouf. Yeah. Yeah. So he wrote a song about Shia LaBeouf being a cannibal, you know, hunting you down to kill you in the woods. And that was really fun because he wrote the song just as a joke, obviously, because how could you write this seriously? And just put it up on his SoundCloud to send to a friend and some of his fans found it and it kind of went viral on SoundCloud. It had 2 million streams. So he knew that if he ever recorded a real version and made a video for it, that it would do really well. So we worked hard to get the funding and the idea, and he pulled off this just completely insane over-the-top video for this song. And then we got Shia LaBeouf to actually be in it, which was amazing. And it went viral. It's at about 60 million views so far. So the business is touring now. You don't make money on records, which looking at you, that's hard to argue because obviously if you sell like six million copies of anything, you made some money on that. Yeah. But you know the future of your business in this industry is touring. That's where yes. the records are supporting the tours at this point. Yeah, absolutely. So how do you sign an act that's not going to tour? Because the business is touring when you're purely trying to be a forward-facing artist. But in Rob's case, the Shia LaBeouf thing opened a lot of songwriting opportunities for him. So he now writes for Disney. He gets hired to do huge TV commercials. He got asked to take a stab at writing the opening for the Oscars last year. So, you know, his career has shifted into more of a songwriting direction than a touring direction. And he's beyond busy with his writing right now. So to take time to figure out how to make his 
own music, which is less lucrative to him, how to turn that into a live show and then, you know, get it out there and slug it out on the road. It's not the right financial decision for him right now. Now, I've always thought it was interesting, the difference between managers and promoters. You guys get to commission everything and you don't have to lose and big shots. And over the years, particularly David Britz, who's explained this to me in detail, Mm -hmm. David will tell me that he's the last one to get paid as the manager. Everyone gets paid first and then he gets to commission it. You guys take bigger shots in general because, A, you've got your overhead, and if it doesn't sell, your time, nothing gets paid for. There is no guarantee with the act. You have to bring in revenue. So, and I've gotten to have this argument particularly with David a lot. So over time, what I've really always been scared of on the management side is, well, I have all of this risk. My risk is limited to one date or 10 dates or whatever it is, and I get to walk away if it didn't work out. Play the shows, take my loss, and move on. But my time is limited to the date that I bought. Right. Whereas you guys can't dabble. I can take on a pet project. When you guys called about Alex and Sierra, I didn't have to commit much time to it. I had to commit a little bit of marketing Mm -hmm. and a little bit of company resources. But essentially, I was just making sure you guys got into the venues and make sure that the venues were taking you seriously. It was more about making sure you guys got the look that you needed. It wasn't really a time devotion of me. I was able to take it on as a pet project and just get it done and drive it down the field and settle the shows a couple weeks later. You have a much bigger commitment to what you're involved with as a manager. You can't take on a pet project that you don't care if it's going to bring in revenue or not. You're committing a whole lot of time to anything you take on. Yeah, absolutely. It's not just dipping your toes. Absolutely. So much bigger swings. If it's successful, like Great Big World, great. But if it's not, and most things just aren't, it's just the management world is definitely a 95-5 kind of thing of what really hits. Yeah, That's why you have to only take on things where you truly, truly believe in it and truly see the vision. And you probably actually work with one out of a hundred things that you consider, if if even that, because for me, everything has to line up. I have to A, love the music, become not even love it, but just become completely obsessed with the music and B, really think that the artists get it and work hard and see, you know, see the vision and say, okay, I can take this music and I can put it here and I'm going to call this person and I'm going to talk to this and really know like the next 30 steps that you're going to take with the project. And if I don't, then it's easy to say, I love you guys. I love your music, but I just, I'm not the right person for this project. So yes, it's a huge risk. Absolutely. Because it can take a year or two before a project is even bringing in any money at all, if it ever does. But that's the fun part of it too. It's, it's risky. When you take on an act, are you seeing them all the way through going, I envision this to be a stadium act one day? Or are you looking at them going, I think this can be a legit theater headliner, or I believe that this could sell out ballrooms. When you look at an act, what is your goal when you're looking at them? And I'm not talking about on the next tour, yeah. but as a career artist, how far down the road are you looking at this could be the biggest band in the world at some point? I mean, you're definitely looking far down the road. And personally, I would love my bands to be the biggest band in the entire world. But ultimately, I also just want my bands to be able to work and to have a consistent career. And I think in the music industry and a lot of industries, it's always like, okay, we got to this level. Now we have to get to the next level. Now we have to get to the next level. Now we have to get to the next level. But not everybody gets to that top level. So you're setting yourself up for disappointment and failure and potentially making wrong decisions that could hurt your career. So I would be perfectly content with 
an artist who can go out and tour theaters every year and, you know, make a business and be consistent and put on a great show and come back with something new every time. I don't think the arena needs to be the ultimate goal of every single act. It's just not realistic and not every act is built for it. Okay, but when you're looking at an act, you do have a vision of where you're going to take them. Yeah, of course. Like Alex and Sierra, where in your head is the goal? What size rooms should they be headlining if everything falls into place the way you would hope it would in five years? I'd say like three to 5,000 consistent. Paramore size act, give or take. Yeah. Which would generate an incredible amount of touring revenue. Exactly. As well as album sales. Exactly. Okay, that's super realistic. That could totally happen with two or three good albums between now and then based on the platform they're on now. Yep. Absolutely. And if they break a single, even better. Yeah. Okay, so that makes a whole lot of sense. Now, it is Promoter 101, and it would be a mistake not to ask you to give some advice on people that are looking for a manager. What are the things that they should have in place before they try to get a real manager on board? Like, what makes you just blow past an email or a press pack or an EPK when you see it because it's just, it doesn't have this or it isn't that or What does a band need to have? You know, it's so hard to give this advice because it's kind of a chicken and egg thing where everybody's looking for other team members to come on first, right? So for me, if you already have an agent, that makes you a lot more attractive. So it's Promoter 101. I can't let you leave the room without asking you what a band really needs to have in place before they're ready for a manager. What are the things that you disqualify an act if they don't have? It's so hard to say that there's one specific thing because every band has a different reason why they might be interesting. For instance, I just signed a band called The Federal Empire, who are fantastic, and it's the new project from Chad Wolf of Carolina Liar. So there we go. There's one thing that's interesting about this band is that, you know, this guy has experience. He has a ton of connections. He's incredibly talented. It's been proven. He's had radio hits and had a lot of touring. So that's attractive. And then their music is fucking great. And they've got great agents. J. Bo Lewis and David Galea from UTA are, are on the team as well. So that's kind of a no brainer for me. And I really see the vision for them. I get emails from just random bands, you know, just sending me, hey, we got 100,000 streams on SoundCloud and this random blog has posted about us. You know, unfortunately, that's just not a hook and it's not enough to get me to be like, oh, great, I'm going to jump in and manage you right now. So as hard as it is, it's like I said, it's 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 kind of a chicken and egg situation where you're always kind of looking for something else or somebody else to be on board and to know that you're going to get in here and kind of have a team and have some other people that you can bounce ideas off of. So as a developing band, unfortunately, I think my biggest advice, and I, and I know they hear this all the time, is to don't just cold email industry people with your stats that are really exciting to you, but actually not that impressive. And just really focus on, you know, making a great video that catches attention or playing some shows that might get you in front of people or, you know, working on music and and trying to have people come to you is always going to be better than than spending your time, you know, rather than spending two hours a day researching random managers and sending them cold emails, spend those two hours working on your band and, and developing a story. When you're developing an act, how do you tell them to utilize social media? What's your hope for them? Sure. That's really hard because what I do is try to you know, really explain the different platforms and the best practices and how to use them. And, you know, talking about how Instagram is your glossy magazine, put the high quality photos there. Twitter is whatever, say whatever you want, whenever you want. But we really work with our artists to 
try to get them to use their own voice. And then we're incredibly involved with coming up with social calendars and this is what we're going to post. And hey, this is, you know, for instance, a great big world. Chad has MS. So hey, it's World MS Day coming up. Let's plan for that. And, you know, really helping supplement ideas for their social calendars, but also encouraging them to be candid and be in the moment and, and post things that are true to them. So some artists are better than others. Alex and Sierra handle all of their own socials and are really great with it. And other artists need a little bit more help. Okay, so can you overpost? Yes, on certain platforms. I don't think you can overpost on Twitter. And on Facebook, I mean, nobody sees your posts anyways, right? But you can on Instagram. I've been told by Instagram experts never to post more than four times a week on Instagram. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Excellent. I want to thank you so much for taking the time and talking to us. Thanks, Dan. It's easy to see why we're happy to have Cindy as a part of the Works family. Hey everyone, this is Cindy Lynott, Bruce Solar, Ali Spagnola, Ari Herstan, Jabo Lewis, Michael Yerke, John Meglin, David Brent, Larry Butler, Dandy Gold, John Finberg, Kira Thinkenberg, Jonathan Shank. You are listening to Promoter 101. Promoter 101. Promoter 101. Promoter 101. Coming up next, comedian Billy Wayne Divis gives us a taste of life on the road. Promoter 101, we're excited to have Billy Wayne Davis with us himself, the comic, the legend, the road warrior. How you doing, Billy? Doing well. How are you doing, man? I'm excited. Comics seem to have a really weird travel world where you guys go from airport to airport and hotel to hotel and some really fucked up shitty comedy clubs. Yeah. So uh, can you let us in a little bit on your world? It's one of those things where it's like so normal to me that you don't realize it's weird until you just start talking about it and people look at you like you do what and then what you remove like if you do some other gig like a host a documentary that's when i realized like oh stand-up's insane i mean it's constantly compared with a heroin junkie where you're just trying to find your next fix and you just kind of do whatever you can do to get on stage again so you've just compared your comedy addiction to a heroin addiction yeah i think that's fair after my divorce i lived in a hotel next to SeaTac airport and the reason i picked that hotel was because i could smoke indoors <laughs> that tells you anything about where my head was at all right you on the road today or are you uh you at home i'm at home today I, I leave i go to denver next week you spend most of your time on the road i think we met the first time backstage at a um it was ralphie may right yeah i think so i think it was at the moore maybe in seattle yeah i mean we're talking like a decade plus ago like it's been a while 2006 for sure yeah so like a decade ago weird you're always on the road you're not a guy that's just doing open mics you're like grinding it out there constantly yeah, I mean, this is how I make my living is was mainly to stand up. So I toured with Sturgill Simpson a couple of years ago. Well, now a couple, about a year and a half ago, I did 30 dates with him. I've toured with Ralphie May, who's a fairly large act. So when you're not on stage and making people laugh at a comedy club or a theater, what's the day to day for a comic when you're not in front of the audience? Right now, the day-to-day -day is like I'm working on new material for the next album, for the next special, and I'm just trying to develop a couple of TV shows and a couple of uh, travel shows and trying to get those out. And also, right now, I'm in the beta part of this podcast with a very funny comic named Jasper Red. It should be up and running and released next month, so... We're just getting the, the kinks out right now. So it's, I'm just getting my name out there in as many different mediums and avenues as possible. Yeah. When you uh, headline, you get to do whatever you want. But when you're supporting, there's a certain responsibility of fitting into the crowd of the headliner, right? I mean, there's that vibe of how far are you allowed to go? Yeah. It all depends on who you're working with and what their crowd is. I've rarely worked with anybody that's like, hey, don't do this or don't do that. So can you give us uh, a little insight on some of the more fucked up things that happen on the road? Like most of it's kind of fucked up. I mean, I was kind of a, I was a drunk for 
the first six or seven years, seven, eight, nine years I did it. I was in a bad marriage. So I've got some really fun just being like hammered drunk in cities that you're unfamiliar with. I learned real quick, though, that flying hungover is one of the worst things you can ever do. So I (laughs) wouldn't get too hammered the night before I was flying because you just literally want to die. But I mean, I got to party with Mitch Hedberg and Greg Giraldo. Don't party with me or you'll die is the (laughs) moral of that. That little click of playing with those guys is great, but you got to be out there working it like in some of those random places that you can't find on a map, right? I mean, you're talking some small little shitholes that in the afternoon are one thing and at night, like the coffee shop turns into... The ha-ha hole of, what, Erie, Pennsylvania, or what have you, or Yakima, Washington. Oh, yeah, I've played both those places, and you're not far off about, like, the ha-ha hole. Or, I mean, I've played Chilkoot Charlie's in Anchorage. That's <laughs> a good one. I actually love Anchorage, Alaska. I love Alaska. Like, I hooked up with a chick there. We did our thing. She hopped off of me after we were done and looked back as she was walking to the bathroom, and she said, I still think you're gay. And I was like, I don't know how to prove to you that I'm not. I did literally everything I could. <laughs> All right, so your albums are on Spotify if people want to check you out, and you're going to be playing live where soon? What are you plugging? Uh, I'm in San Francisco in two weeks, April 26th at the Punchline. Next week, I'm all over Denver, Colorado Springs, Boulder. If you just go to my Tumblr, which is Billy Wayne Davis Tumblr, all my tour dates come up there. All right, Billy Wayne Davis. I'm Promoter 101. Thanks so much, buddy. Hey, thanks for having me, Dan. Billy's one of the hottest comics in the L.A. scene. He really seems to be enjoying a moment right now. Hi, I'm Michael Yerke from Live Nation. I'm the president of talent for House of Blues Entertainment at Live Nation, and you're here at Promoter 101. So we've once again come to the end of our road. Have no fear. We're going to be back. We've got some amazing guests coming up on the podcast, including Kira Finkenberg, Troy Blakely, APA's Bruce Solar, Larry Butler, Steve Rennie, Michael Yerke, John Feinberg, Mike Hayes, Andy Gold, Rob McDermott, Mike McGinley, a.k.a. The Goon, Mitch Rose, Peter Katzis, Jonathan Shank, David Marcus, J. Bud Lewis, Sean Healy, and so many more. If you have any thoughts or feedback about the podcast, we'd love to hear from you. And please drop us a review online, especially if it's five stars on iTunes. We really, really could use that. Send us an email with any of your ideas to Steiny at promoter101.net. Keep up with us on Twitter at W. Luke Pierce, and Dan is at the Jew, and the show is at Promoters 101. Be sure to subscribe to Promoter 101 wherever you podcast. And please help spread the word. Tell your friends. Tell your goldfish. Tell your dog walker. If you missed any of the past podcasts, you can always catch up at Promoter101.net. Well, that's all for our show. You don't have to go, but you can't stay here. Hello, this is Sarah Mertz. Rick Barrow. Nick Light. Mark Geiger. This is Lee Anderson. Kevin Lyman. John Giddings. Jim Rungi. Jeff White. Brian Zisk. Chuck Randall. Brian O'Connell. Zandria Johnson. Adam Parsons. Ariel Hyatt. Ben Mench. Jamie Miller. Billy Wayne Davis. Brandon Frankel. Mitchell Fon. Jake Gould. Gary Smith. Jeff Cohen. You are on Promoter 101. Promoter 101.